Good morning. Today is Monday, April 13th, and I uh, hope you had a, a blessed uh, Resurrection Sunday and weekend and all. And um, we're going to start our update by jumping back into a subject we started on Saturday, uh, looking at the sequence of end times events as they unfold, as the Bible describes them, and uh, my best take on how the scriptures uh, begin to break these things down. On Saturday, <clears throat> we started by talking about this, the subject of the rapture of the church. And uh, today, I was going to jump into Ezekiel 38 and 39 and begin to look at that. But it struck me as I was thinking about that, that there is a topic that uh, I would be better uh, jumping into ahead of that, because I don't want to take for granted that everybody necessarily thinks about this topic very much. But we will definitely as we move into passages like Ezekiel 38 and 39 and what they ultimately focus on. And that's the subject of Israel. Uh, now, the subject of Israel in prophecy, uh, whereas I would say that Israel is the centerpiece of biblical prophecy. Of course, obviously, Jesus is, this, is the focus of biblical prophecy. I'm not saying that, obviously, but in terms of world events <clears throat> and nations and such, uh, no nation has the place that Israel has when it comes to understanding biblical prophecy. And I would suggest that if we're going to understand biblical prophecy properly, we have to have a proper view of Israel and her place in it. And uh, that is a point of some contention, even among the body of Christ. Um, but nonetheless, I'm gonna go ahead and present it from the pro-Israel view, the, the idea that God has made promises to Israel that are going to stand, uh, that, that she stands on and can ultimately uh, help us to, to understand wh why she figures so prominently in eschatology or end times things. And so, uh, as a matter of fact, one teacher, uh, some of you may have heard of uh, a guy named Chuck Missler, probably many of you have if you're into prophecy, and he passed away a couple of years ago, but he used to talk uh, about Israel this way as, uh, in, in that he would say, if you want to know where we are in the prophetic timetable, watch Israel. And that was something that was hugely instrumental to me early on as a student of scripture. And, uh, and it's just continually borne itself out as the years have gone by. And so that being said, we're going to look at Israel today and very likely tomorrow because my intention is to keep these podcasts uh, much shorter than yesterday, actually between 15 and 20 minutes. I think uh, Saturday's was like 30 minutes. But um, yeah, mostly just try to keep them bite-sized, meaningful, but accessible and, 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 and easily digestible kinds of bites. And so... Um, we're going to go ahead and, uh, and look at Israel. And so with that, I'll invite you to open your Bible to where it starts, and that's Genesis chapter 12. Now, Genesis chapter 12 is where God calls Abraham. Uh, it, if you've never really thought about this subject, and I don't want to make a lot of assumptions as we talk about these things, so let me assume for a moment that you haven't thought much about this idea. Well, the Jewish nation started with, ultimately, the father of the Jewish people is Abraham, uh, Abraham is, uh, is the man whom God called out of a place called the Ur of the Chaldees out in the Middle East, and he called him to ultimately follow him. And he would make promises to Abraham that we'll look at here in just a moment. But, uh, you know, there was a time when there was no such thing as Israel or a Jewish race. Uh, as a matter of fact, the, the, the word Hebrew uh, is, is sometimes assumed to have come from one of Abraham's forefathers named Eber, uh, and it's possible that the word Hebrew came from that. And Abraham was known as a Hebrew uh, as, as, uh, as time went on. And so um, that being said, Abraham starts clean slate. I mean, he is just living in this part of the world. We don't know a lot about him prior to that. We just know <clears throat> that when God calls him, 
he comes and he follows. And I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to uh, read from Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to read uh, the first uh, three, uh, three, four verses or so where um, uh, Moses here in the book of Genesis recording. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so Abraham went as the Lord told him. Now this begins the promises uh, that are given to Abraham and the relationship that God develops with Abraham. And through Abraham, Ultimately comes Isaac and then Jacob, and from Jacob come the 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. <clears throat> it's a fascinating study, and at some point it may be that we talk about some of those things in further detail. Uh, but for the time being, we're going to start by just pointing out that this is where the promises of God to Abraham, and by extension, therefore, to the Jewish people, ultimately begins. Uh, Abraham is ultimately promised three things here by God. First off, he is promised uh, land. Okay, he says, I want you to go uh, from your country, from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And this eventually happens where Abraham goes and God tells Abraham to walk and just as far as he walks, that land is what God is going to give him. He brings him to a place which ultimately today we would think of biblically as Canaan or today in modern times as Israel. Interestingly, uh, the size of Israel, even setting apart some of its land for peace deals that she's made with her surrounding uh, uh, adversaries uh, over the years, even setting that aside, the amount of land that Abraham would have ultimately uh, walked on was much larger than what current Israel is. Uh, but that's, again, another thing. So, but God take, uh, tells him to go to a place that he'll show him, and he does show him, and he ultimately, uh, that becomes the place that will become Israel, the place that God has promised. The second thing is that God promises to make his name great, uh, I'm sorry, I'll make your name great, so you will be a blessing, and I will bless those that bless you. Uh, I'm sorry, let me back up. And I will make of you a great nation, verse 2. Um, Abram uh, is somebody who, uh, by the way, his name is Abram at this point. It becomes Abraham, uh, exalted father Abraham, uh, Abram, and Abraham means father of many, I think is how that is variously translated. But uh, Abram is... Uh, uh, an old man already, and he's going to be an even older man by the time God fulfills this promise. But ultimately, God promises Abraham that he is going to build out of him a great nation. In other words, they will be a great people. Not just the land, but the people will be his own people, and they will be a great nation. And lastly, he promises that through him and through this nation, uh, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Uh, now, just to jump ahead for a quick moment, um, you know, generally speaking, uh, Israel has not been viewed by the world around it as a blessing. So what does God mean by that ultimately? Well, at some times, Israel's been a blessing in, in some respects, one respect or another. Uh, I, I, I'm speaking of it pro, I mean, in terms of uh, Israel's being a nation that is a blessing, I see it as that. But many of her enemies over the years have not seen her as that. So in what way are all the nations of the world blessed by this country, ultimately, this nation? Ultimately, it's through the Messiah that would, that would eventually come. Uh, as, that, as Abraham's posterity continues on, we find out in the book of Matthew 
that Abraham tracks Jesus' genealogy, not just through David, but ultimately through Abraham. And then Luke goes even further back to Adam, but uh, Matthew, a very Jewish-focused book, uh, a gospel written directly uh, with the Jews in mind to reach them, uh, speaks of Abraham as ultimately the lineage through which Christ comes. And so this is an important thing that we're talking about here in terms of Abraham. Um, now, uh, so the redemption, the promise of the Messiah ultimately will become the blessing that the whole world is, 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 is um, ultimately invited to enjoy. Now, let me say at this point, uh, and um, um, this again, the subject of Israel and a place in prophecy is the subject of a lot of contention even among the body of Christ. Uh, it's not just the battle between uh, Islam and, and Judaism and that, and Isaac and Ishmael, the two sons that Abraham ultimately has there. But, um, but even within the body of Christ itself, uh, there is the question of whether or not this Israel that, is, that we're describing the birth of here, the, the founding of through Abraham, uh, is that the same Israel as today? And the general contention revolves around, among other things, the fact that Israel is in unbelief, they've rejected a Messiah, they uh, have they are not the same people. And on top of that, Paul describes Israel as being more than just an ethnic thing. It's ultimately a spiritual thing. Uh, he talks about this in Galatians chapter 3, which I would invite you to read. Uh, he talks about how not all who are Israel are Israel ethnically, is what's implied there. And he goes on to speak of how Abraham, by faith, as it says here in, in uh, uh, verse 4, Abraham went with God as he had said. In chapter 15, we'll see how God reaffirms the covenant uh, to Abraham, as Abraham's an old man. And as, uh, matter of fact, let's jump there real quick, and I'll kind of connect the dots here. Abraham, uh, Genesis 15. Uh, in Genesis chapter 15, uh, Abraham is an old man, and he still has not seen God's promise ultimately fulfilled in him. And so God said, and Abraham tells God, you know, it looks like my, my heir here is Eliezer, my servant, uh, and uh, I don't have a, a son to be an heir. And God says, no, Eliezer won't be your heir. I'm going to give you a son. And so uh, here in Genesis chapter 15, God reaffirms his promise to make Abraham a great nation and he will give him a son through which that will happen. And God makes in chapter 15 what is called a unilateral covenant. Now that sounds like a technical term, but let me explain what that means. When two people back in those days would make a covenant, uh, they would basically, one of the ways they would verify or, or validate that covenant is they would take an animal, they would cut it in half, Sounds kind of gross, but this is what they would do. They would cut an animal in half. They would lay the two halves uh, across from each other, and the two covenant makers would walk through there, and the blood that was dripping all between there was intended to sort of, uh, that they would walk through. This was intended to sort of send, the, uh, send a message that, look, if either one of us breaks this covenant, this is what will happen to us kind of a thing. We are so committed to this covenant is essentially what's being said. Well, in Genesis chapter 15, God makes this covenant with Abraham, but doesn't have Abraham walk through it. Notice what happens here, starting in, um, in verse uh, 9. God telling Abraham he's going to confirm the covenant says to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a male, a female goat, I should say, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them, all these. He brought him all these. Cut them in half and laid them each half over against each, uh, the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, 
Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. He's referring to the uh, captivity in Egypt at that point. Um, uh, but I will bring judgment upon that nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Another whole thing, but essentially what God is saying is, is that even though your people one day will be taken from this place and kept in captivity, they will come back here. And the point is, this is their home. This is the place that I've given them. And even though they're taken captive, and that would happen a number of times actually, they will come back to this place. Now verse 17 continues, that when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, and Rephaim, the Amorites and the Canaanites, Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And so this scene, which, you know, in your daily Bible reading, you might have just blown right through, is actually enormously significant. Because in this, God is reconfirming a covenant that he made to Abraham in chapter 12, and not only that, this land will be yours. I'm giving it to you. I will make you a great nation. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. You, this will come through a son that I will give you. And then God sets up this standard, understandable covenant with Abraham, but doesn't let Abraham walk through it. Instead, he puts a deep sleep on Abraham, and God himself alone walks through it. That isn't, or, you know, as it were, as this flaming torch and fire pot go through and this, this is the presence of God going through these cut animal pieces symbolizing a unilateral covenant. What is a unilateral covenant? A covenant that only depends on the faithfulness of the one who made it. Now, why is that so important? And why is it so pivotal to our understanding of Israel's place? And why is it what I believe is the mistake that so many make when they say that Israel is not the same Israel as then? Here's why. Because what God was doing in Genesis 15 was demonstrating that the faithfulness of this covenant does not rest upon Abraham or thereby his descendants. It rests not on their faithfulness, but only on God's faithfulness. It does not depend on how well they keep the covenant. It does not depend on whether they keep the covenant. It depends on whether God keeps the covenant. And that's an enormous distinction. Uh, there were uh, uh, bilateral covenants made between God and his people later. Uh, when, the, the, uh, when God told Moses to have the people separate onto the two different hills, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and they would shout the blessings for obedience back and forth with those who would shout the cursings for disobedience. Uh, the law itself given through Moses was a bilateral covenant. The idea was that blessings would follow obedience. It was contingent on obedience and cursings would come upon disobedience. In this covenant in Genesis 15, there is no contingency on the part of the people, Abraham or his descendants. It does not rely on their faithfulness, their belief, their obedience, any of it. It depends completely and totally, unequivocally, 100% on God's faithfulness. So what about Israel's disobedience? Well, that's been characteristic of, of Israel throughout their history. As a matter of fact, she's sometimes referred to as the unfaithful bride of Jehovah. She is uh, constantly going after false gods. And, and as a matter of fact, the book of Judges, if you want to know what that really looks like, the book of Judges is a great example of this. 
where a cycle just continually rolls through the book, <clears throat> uh, where they are walking with God, then they go after idols or they fall into disobedience. Uh, God brings judgment upon them. Then he sends a prophet to them to bring them back. They ultimately repent and come back and they walk in obedience for a while and experience God's blessing. Then they go into, excuse me, into disobedience again and, and God judges them, sends a prophet. You know, this, this whole thing goes on and on. Uh, and the book of Judges ends, is with, ends with this cryptic statement that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it's just this indictment, really, upon the heart of God's own people. Well, that has been characteristic of Israel throughout pretty much you know, most of the Old Testament period and ultimately even into the time of Jesus and even on to the modern day as Israel lives as, as Paul would prophesy here in, in Romans that they are, uh, or not prophesy, but explain that they're living in disbelief. Uh, blindness has come over Israel uh, for a time and for a long time until, uh, as he says there in, in, uh, in Romans, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And so there's a period of time uh, where, where God in the beginning here, God has based his covenant with them not on their faithfulness, but only on his own. And even though a period of time came after the time of Christ where God set his people aside for a time, he did not cast them off. And this is important. How do we know he didn't cast them off? What reason would he have cast them off for if the, if the covenant he made with them was based on his own faithfulness? Now, Paul makes a big case out of this in Romans 9 through 11. As a matter of fact, in particular, chapter 11. Uh, Romans 9 through, uh, 9 through 11 is generally held uh, as, as having to do with God's sovereignty uh, as opposed to man's responsibility. And, it's, and, and certainly it, it speaks to that issue. But I think it also speaks just as much to the question of God's faithfulness to his covenant people. And I think if we believe it has to either speak to one thing or the other, but not both, we make a mistake on both camps. And so let me focus here on the fact that Paul deals, especially again in Romans 11, but I would suggest Romans 9 through, uh, 9 through, uh, uh, yeah, 9 through 11, that, uh, um, uh, that, that in this passage, Paul is making the case that God's faithfulness is so reliable that if, if God were not going to be, as a matter of fact, the reason we know it's, it's, it's so strong is because if God chose to be unfaithful to his own people, then you and I would not have the confidence that he would be faithful to us. Now that's a big thing. That's a big thing for Paul to make the, the point to say, but that is what he is saying, among other things. And so for us to recognize Israel's place in prophecy is paramount to understanding how prophecy unfolds. Uh, it will affect how we view um, uh, eschatology on virtually you know, 90% of it. Again, Jesus is the ultimate focus of prophecy. The church has a place in prophecy. But, you know, whether you're looking at Matthew 24, whether you're looking at the book of Revelation, chapters uh, 6 through 19, uh, how you understand those passages has a lot to do with uh, this question of, is Israel Israel? Uh, there is both ethnic Israel and there is spiritual Israel. Uh, and we'll talk more about that, no doubt, as we go. But... The fact that you and I as Christians, as believers, if you're a follower of Jesus, have been grafted, as Paul would illustrate, into the vine, doesn't mean that the vine is no longer there. As a matter of fact, he makes that point. You and I are grafted onto a pre-existing vine, uh, which is ultimately Israel and the truth that God has brought to the world through them. Um, if God casts that branch, that, that vine away, what, what, uh, what sense do we have that God will hold on to the branches as well? So uh, understanding prophecy uh, uh, properly 
uh, requires that we put Israel in a proper place in it. Um, she has both come back to the land physically, as was prophesied in numerous places, but we'll talk more about that tomorrow uh, as we look at the rebirth of the nation itself. But I wanted to lay this foundation uh, regarding Israel first. Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 remind us uh, and, or, or tell us and make clear to us that God's promise to Israel is not one that is dependent upon her people's faith, uh, on his people's faithfulness, but is based entirely on his own faithfulness. And that is why the Israel of today, for starters, again, will continue tomorrow, but that begins to lay the foundation for why, when we look at Israel today, she becomes a very clear indicator of where we are in the prophetic timetable. Her, her rebirth in 1948 was an enormous moment, not just for Bible prophecy nuts, but to help us understand as the body of Christ, just what season we are very quickly moving into. Uh, so that all said, boy, I just, I feel like there's a lot more that I want to say right now, but I'm, I'm going to stop it there. And we'll pick up with part two of this uh, subset here, looking at Israel tomorrow. And we may finish that tomorrow. We may take another one after. We'll see. But my hope is that this is something that in, in route to understanding prophecy in the larger scope gives us a foundation upon which to build our understanding of it. So thank you for joining today. And I look forward to, to continuing on this tomorrow. But let me pray us out as we as we wrap up. Father, we're thankful for your word. And if we believe your word in part, we have to believe it. Or if we believe it in whole, we have to believe all the various parts of it and understand them in context. So thank you for giving us this passage here, these two passages in Genesis that help us understand the place of your covenant people Israel, the apple of your eye, your own special people uh, in terms of prophecy, not just in terms of the Old Testament, but in terms of the overwhelming scope of how these things that we're starting to see unfold at rapid pace uh, truly uh, can be understood. So help us to understand it. Help us to understand what your word has to say, uh, both for the sake of just understanding you and your nature and character, but also recognizing the times in which we live. Help us not to make the mistake of the Pharisees who could judge the weather by the, uh, the things they saw around them, but missed the signs of the times they were living in. Help us not to make that mistake, but instead to be open to what your word has to say and to embrace it and to allow it to guide us as we understand these things. So we thank you and praise you, Father, and we look forward to continuing to go through these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.